crowds ran to Christ. He was faithful to heal them. Would you, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't we run to him in our needs and present our needs to him? Let's pray together now. Almighty God, we come before you now in prayer, bringing to you the needs of our church, or at least some of them, and, and asking for your work in our church, O oh God. Father, we know that there are many in this room who are hurting and who are struggling. Father, I, I pray for all today who are here, who are distant from you, O oh God, who have been encumbered by sin in their lives and who are having difficulty turning from their sin. Father, would you be near to them today? Would you remind them that it is not our fitness by which we are able to come to Christ, but that we come to Christ and Christ leads us to repentance? Father, we pray for any who are grieving today, who are weeping in our midst. We remember the widows and widowers in our midst, and we, we pray for them. We pray for, for your spirit to be with them as the good comforter that he is. Father, we remember Joan Hutchinson as she is grieving the loss of her husband, Desmond. As we thank you for Desmond's life, we pray now for Joan in this new season of life that you would encourage her, O oh God. Would you be near to her, O oh God? Would you allow our church to be kind and remembering of her and walk with her through this season of her life now, we pray. Father, we pray for uh, the granddaughter of Gary and Brenda Korn, Jamie, as she this morning has been taken to the hospital. Father, we pray for Jamie right now as, as the doctor's uh, work with her and help with this issue with asthma. We pray that you would protect her and that you would restore her health. We pray that you would uh, give the doctors insight and wisdom. We pray that she would look to you even in these moments of uh, difficulty physically, oh God. Father, we pray for our church. We pray that you would build us up in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would let us become uh, spiritually mature in Christ, that Christ would become more and more the center of who we are, and that this would transform the ways that we go about our, our lives every day, and the ways that we love one another as a church together each day. Would you work in us today, we pray, even now through your word. Guide my words, O oh God. Reveal yourself to us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What kind of life does God intend to give to his disciples? God, God chooses his disciples. Do you know this? I think it's easy for us often to think wrongly about what God would wish for his disciples to have in this life. I wonder if we, we often just accidentally get this wrong about what we think God would really want for those of us who would follow after him. Let me offer three hypothetical examples to show what I mean. How are our expect expectations about what God wants to give us often maybe just a little off? 
Stacy is a pastor's wife. Three years ago, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Her diagnosis has been incredibly difficult. Her church has loved her well, but she has more days of sorrow and pain and weeping than she does of joy. However, some Christians in Stacy's church say really unhelpful things. Some Christians have told her it couldn't possibly be God's will for her to be sick. Blessing from God should mean that his disciples have a healthy life, right? What kind of life does God intend to give to his disciples who follow him? Think about Peter. He's a high school student, the son of a family at church, and he is clearly a genuine Christian, and his family is happy about that. But recently, Peter has been unusually concerned about other countries that are far off, that don't have the gospel. And he's especially concerned about some of the more dangerous countries where sharing the gospel is illegal. And now, now, Peter's parents love him, but they certainly aren't praying for him to go to the mission field anytime soon. Secretly, they're hoping that he'll be distracted by college, find a good career somewhere that's maybe local and hopefully safe. What kind of life does God intend for those who will follow after Christ? Thirdly, Tyler is a dad. He's been wanting to do a better job following Jesus. So this year, he started reading his Bible every day, every morning praying. And he not only feels good about himself for doing this, but he's noticed that things have been going good for him. First, he got a raise at work this year. And then a distant relative passed away and left him a large inheritance. Now he's suddenly well off. And he's thinking to himself, maybe it's true. Maybe God intends for his real disciples, those who were really serious about him, to be blessed. What do you think about each of these examples? Is, is Stacy's health or Peter's safety or Tyler's wealth are these signs of God's blessing? What kind of life does God intend to give to those who will follow him? When Jesus calls us to be his disciples, shouldn't we see this blessing in our lives even now? Shouldn't a good God be making things easier for us, we would think? You think visible blessing just makes sense to us. Shouldn't we come to expect it? This week's passage gets into this question. Our passage shows Jesus calling 12 men to be his disciples and then gives just a stunning introduction into their future ministry. In the eyes of the world, this ministry, this, this calling itself is just upside down. Or, or maybe it's right side up. Open your Bibles if you haven't already. Turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26, which Bob just read for us. If you're taking notes, I know some of you, it helps to just take notes, jot things down that you hear throughout the sermon to have something to talk with someone else about later or perhaps to follow along a little better. I'll have two main points and then a brief third point. So my two main points are going to be surprising choices and surprising expectations. Then we're going to end with a surprising example. So point number one, surprising choices. This, this is, comes from the first section of our text that shows us who Jesus chose to follow him. Now, these surprising choices are not unintentional. 
as we see in verse 12. Did you notice how the passage starts? In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So, once again, Luke reminds us that Jesus is a man of prayer. Before making these big decisions in his life about who he will name as apostles, Jesus models a reliance on the Father. Luke tells us that he didn't just briefly pray here for wisdom. He continued all night in prayer. The idea was that Jesus wasn't merely offering up this, this passing cursory prayer to God as he was on his way. No, he was, he was pursuing God and, and not putting his prayer as an afterthought to his decision. He was praying at cost to himself, staying up all night. Uh, by the way, this is just reminiscent of what we'll later see in in Acts 13, if you were just were to keep reading, you'd see in Acts 13, when the church sets apart missionaries to go out, they, they come together and they dedicate themselves to prayer. And then even a chapter later in Acts 14, when the church sets aside elders, they commit themselves to prayer. It seems that prayer is to be just central in evaluating leadership. Just very practically, we just walked through this just a few minutes ago, didn't we, with with Pastor Caleb as we, we set him aside in prayer. And honestly, that was a result of months of prayer. Friends, as we as elders in this church pray over future deacons and future elders and leaders in our congregation, we seek to be elders that are just pursuing the Lord in prayer. You should pray with us in this. So here Jesus is praying over the task that he's walking into. Verse 13, when day came... He called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So he called them, he chose them, and he named them. If you're someone who likes to take notes in your Bibles, you can just circle those three words. Called, chose, named. We'll come back to them in a minute. So here, Jesus is is setting aside these men uh, to be apostles, Now, Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the apostles were the first foundation of the church. And so Jesus identifies these 12 men, which he lists out there in verses 14 and 15. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simeon, Judas, and Judas Iscariot. Now, this list is surprising. Notice several things here. First of all, This is a small group. Jesus has, we see in the context, great crowds of disciples following after him. But for the work he's about to do, he begins only with 12 men. Secondly, it's just very noticeable, it's a diverse group. So you have Matthew, whose other name would be Levi, we've just studied him a couple weeks ago, And he's this tax collector working for Rome. And in the same list, you have Simon the Zealot, who, part of being a zealot, was working to oppose and to overthrow Rome, both together in this small group. Peter, who's in it, who's this key leader among the apostles. He will one day be a a leader in the church. And Judas is in it, who Luke admits will become a traitor. Third, notice especially here how ordinary this group of apostles is. These men are remarkable for being unremarkable and unknown. It's, this is not a, a who's who 
of the most influential people that Jesus will meet. Think about it. If Jesus wanted religious clout in his following, he could have chosen Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue that we'll read about in Luke chapter 8, or Nicodemus, the, the Jewish leader who came to him by night. If Jesus wanted power and influence, he could have chosen the Roman centurion who comes to him in Luke chapter 7. Or if Jesus had wanted money, he could have chosen Joseph of Arimathea, who we see in Luke chapter 23 as a, this rich patron who was able to help fund Jesus. No, Jesus doesn't want these things. Jesus calls men who are fishermen, men who are outcasts. Not only that, he calls several men here that are so unknown that several of these names we still know very, very little about. You see, Jesus is not focused on their significance. The emphasis is in verse 12 on the fact that Jesus called them. Jesus chose them. Jesus named them apostles. Now, in one sense, this is a unique moment in salvation history. There's, Jesus here is calling these apostles who will be the foundation for the church. And when you're building a house, there's only one foundation. The, this is the foundation for the church that Jesus is beginning. But this, this role, while this role is unique, I think the theme that we're seeing here and what Jesus is doing is not unique at all across Scripture, is it? God chooses those he will use, not based on any merit of our own, but on his sovereign choice. These men will not be used because of their merit, what they bring to the table. No, they, these men will be used because Jesus chose them. This is why in John 15 we read, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Beloved, let me remind you today, it is not your giftedness that qualifies you to bear fruit, to be used by him. How, how foolish would it have been for, for Thomas or for Simeon to tell the pastor, oh, that's okay, I'm, I'm not anything special. Maybe you should go find somebody else to choose to follow you and then just bail out. That would be missing the whole point, wouldn't it? It's not in who they were. It's who Christ is. And that's why he chose them, to display that in them. Same is true for our church. I wonder if some of us wait for God to use the, the super qualified, the people that we think are the, the professionals in ministry, when in reality the, the biblical picture is that all true disciples of Jesus make disciples. I'm encouraged by the ordinariness, ordinary, ordinariness of this list. I'm encouraged about how ordinary this list is. Just like me. If you're a member here today, if you're like me, if you're one of the ordinary ones, invest yourselves in building up other Christians. Don't wait for God to, to use someone else when you can give yourself to serving his church. Well, the passage then points, uh, at this point, shifts, and I'll, I'll be brief on this section. Notice in verse 17 through 19 
we see just a section here that seems to be setting the context for the next uh, chapter that's going to follow. Let me just read it again verse briefly. Verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of the diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. This is not new. We've been seeing this. And the crowd sought to touch him, for, for power came out from him and healed them all. So Jesus had been up on this mountain choosing these apostles, and now he's about to preach a sermon, which we'll get to in just a minute. But before he does, he, he comes down from the mountain, and Luke seems to put that sermon in context. Verse 17, we see they, the apostles, are with him. Also a great crowd of other disciples is with him. Also a great multitude of, of people are there. They had come from far off to hear what Jesus would say and, and to be healed by him. And the picture here is it's like a shepherd that's out amidst his sheep. The, the crowd is, is just like pressing in on him. And he seems to allow them to. He allows his power to heal, verse 19. So that even those who merely had the faith to touch him, just by coming up and not even speaking to him, but crowding in and touching him, he allowed to be healed. This is a physician who is there in the middle of those who are sick. Jesus is not removed and far off. Here, this shepherd is among the sheep. Pastor Caleb. Just a few minute, moments ago, you took vows as an elder in this body. You just said that you would take responsibility in the life of this congregation, devoting yourself to the shepherding of God's flock in such a way that the First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach will be blessed. Brother, as an under-shepherd to this great shepherd, however long you are here, be among your flock and loving them. Let me say this to the other elders that are here in the room. Brothers, this is the task that God has given us as under-shepherds. We are to be out among the flock, loving those who are hurting and needing help. This is what Jesus displays for us time and time again. Let's move on. Let's look at this sermon here. If you're, if you're looking in your Bibles, you'll see this sermon on the plain, as it's called, begins here in verse 20. And it just stretches down through the end of the chapter, down to verse 49. We're not going to do the entire sermon today. All I'm going to do for the rest of this morning is just head into the intro of Jesus' sermon. Uh, and we'll, we'll save the rest for next time we're together. Some of you, as I'm just even walking into this, might be wondering about the Sermon on the Mount. You can find that in Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew 7. Uh, just in short, I don't believe that these are necessarily the same sermon. Uh, I think there's probably too many differences in the content of what Jesus is preaching here and what he preaches there in that sermon. Uh, but there are some, and also the location itself is different. Here he's on a plain, there he's up on a mountain. But, but there are some similarities. There's this set of beatitudes that is common across both. I don't think this should surprise us. I think as Jesus says, this is this itinerant preacher going from place to pra place and preaching. He's probably coming back to some of the same themes and so even some of the same illustrations that he would use. So what I think here is we find this sermon 
set for these people at this time. And this is what we find in verses 20 through 26. Follow along as I, and imagine this as the intro to Jesus' sermon. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn you and your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. What kind of intro is this? He goes farther. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And woe to you. Woe just means pity. I pity you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So, Earlier we saw the surprising choices of the way that Jesus chooses his disciples. Here we see surprising expectations. Number two, surprising expectations. What in the world is happening in this passage? Christ's teaching here is just honestly, it's, it's incredibly strange. There are four blessings here, followed by four matching woes, statements of, of pity. And it's just strange because... The statements of God's favor, the, the blessings, come in things that normal, sane people don't want. Being poor and hungry and weeping and being hated. And these, these statements of pity are things, about that, things that normal people do want. You're to be pitied when you want these things that people normally want. Being rich and full and laughing and being spoken well of. This teaching is just utterly upside down. Is this a mistake? Is this some perhaps sadistic call? Like if you're here today and you're a non-Christian, you're not a believer yet, maybe you're thinking, aha, this is what I thought religious people say. They prohibit having fun. Christians are not even allowed to laugh, right? Are, are we to pursue suffering for suffering's sake? Is, is that what Jesus is calling us to right here? Well, I don't think that's what's happening. If you, even if you remember last week, by the way, with the Pharisees and their fasting, the whole point of it was that Jesus said they were fasting when they should be celebrating. Jesus called them to greater joy, not less joy. They should celebrate more. So then what's happening here? Friends, I think Jesus is setting expectations for his disciples in a fallen world. I think that's what's happening. Let, let me show you. Just back up, if you have your Bible open, back up and notice the context. Back in verse 11, Jesus had been just rejected by these Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the day. He had gone to the, and been rejected by them. They won't hear them anymore. And so then down in verses 12 through 16... Jesus seems to turn and just establish his own new leaders. These are the people that I will establish as leaders. 
And then he then, in verses 17 through 19, seems to show them his ministry, his, his teaching these new religious, leader, religious leaders what they will be doing, his modeling to them. And then look down at verse 23 in this text. He says the strange phrase, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is comparing his new disciples to the faithful Old Testament prophets who experienced hardship. So these blessings seem to be expectations for normal hardship that disciples of Christ will experience in a fallen world. We see that again in, down in verse 26, by the way. You say, see there, it says, For so their fathers did too to the false prophets. So these, these woes, these warnings, almost seem to serve as this warning for how to be a false prophet, for the values that a false prophet will hold. Maybe Jesus is thinking of the Pharisees here. Maybe he's thinking of Judas, who's in this midst. Who, men who generally pursue a warm reception in this fallen world as their priority. And so Jesus then gives us these four pairs of statements which go together for us having right expectations for hardship in this world. And his words are purposely surprising. I think they're meant to get our attention. I don't think they're, they're meant to be rules prohibiting things. I think they, they're generalities for how we should understand that normally when we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Christ, what a normal life will look like. Talk about setting a new normal here. You can imagine that some of these men who are listening here might be thinking, if I follow Jesus, if he's the Messiah, things are going to go great for me. The Messiah is here. He's, he's about to set up his kingdom now. And just follow him, and it's, it's going to all work out. And Jesus pauses here at the beginning of their ministry and says, no, no, no. Let me set the expectations for what normal discipleship looks like in this fallen world. Friends, following after Jesus Christ means your life in this fallen world will often become more difficult before it becomes better. Let's see this together. So four surprising expectations. We'll walk through them quickly. Number one, poverty over riches. So in verse 20, he says, Blessed to you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And now in verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So wealth is not necessarily a sign of blessing. Wealth is a risk of earthly comfort or consolation. It's a risk of us being called to look away from the coming kingdom of God. To some of Jesus' disciples, they will be poor. When they're poor for following Christ, they should see this as a blessing. They should see this as God's favor in their, their life. For one day, as followers of Jesus Christ, they will inherit the kingdom of God. On the other hand, savoring wealth in this world, it's, it's a bit like uh, taking sleeping pills after being bit by a venomous snake. Sure, that's one way to deal with the pain. Go get some rest, get some sleep, enjoy a nice nap. 
but it's a pretty short-sighted approach to the venom in your body. There's a whole lot better rest that you could have if you just held off for that nap and dealt with the real problem. Jesus says money deceives. It it, it entices you to take your eyes off of a, a future permanent fix of our situation. And it tells you, fix it now by by building up a comfortable world around you and be deceived away from looking to your eternal home. So following riches instead of Christ is a bit like emptying out a, a 401k early. You're paying taxes and taking the penalties when you could wait and have so much more. We are called to follow Christ over the riches of this world. When following Jesus lessens your bank account, you're blessed because you're actually getting eternally richer. Church family, I'm just reminded, even as I talk on this, of the, uh, the Martinez family. We're serving right now in Cusco, Peru. Our church supports them. They've left the states here. They're, they're down serving in Peru in a quite volatile situation, working to plant a single church. And, and they've done that. They've planted a church now. They're now working on raising up elders so that Joe Martinez can, can step out of his role as a missionary church planter and see this church in Peru established. Where there was no church, now a church gets established. So our church helps to support them. But just three months ago, uh, they had a major donor just fall out. A, a church back in the States that went through a difficult time, backed out, and they've lost significant funding. And yet they're, they're still choosing right now to stay there in Peru and continue doing the work as they get poorer, already living in a poor country. Well, when Jesus looks at a situation like this, he says that choosing the kingdom of God over choosing a financially viable future on earth, this is a good choice, Joe. I'm I'm not saying there's, there's no boundaries for how we should provide for our family, but Overall, the principle here is that it's, it's easy to follow Christ when life is comfortable. But when Christ's disciples choose to follow him even when it's uncomfortable with their money, then they're looking to a heavenly reward. So for us in this room, let me ask us a question. Do we use our money to show that our hope is not in our present comfort? Do you use your money to show the world around you that your hope is not in your present comfort? Are we willing to become poorer because we're so focused on the kingdom of God? You can just look at your bank account, your credit card, and see. Are there regular markers of spending in light of eternity? This might affect career choices. This would affect how many extra hours you work. This could affect how you generously give to missions or to your church. Jesus says becoming poor for the kingdom of God is actually a blessing. Another surprising expectation. He, he values hunger over satisfaction. Blessed are those who are hungry now, for they shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. 
You see, when Christ's disciples find in the future that following Christ makes them actually more hungry because they followed him, Jesus says they're blessed. But if instead they were to prioritize earthly satisfaction, well, woe to them now because one day they will not be satisfied. I I don't think Jesus is, is merely speaking about food here. I think he's using hunger and satisfaction as a picture. There is a satisfaction in this life that true disciples of Jesus Christ will not find until eternity. We are, we are left hungry, waiting for something more, because our eyes are fixed on the one who is not here, who will take us one day. So to follow Christ at times means we have seemingly less satisfaction than those around us. If your life is so comfortable and full right now that you don't await for heaven, maybe you should rethink your priorities. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must take care not to despise or be unthankful for earthly blessings, but on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else, which they are only a copy of, a echo of, a mirage of. Friends, don't be satisfied in anything less than Christ, which is one day brought to fulfillment in heaven. Be like the disciples who last week were celebrating the bridegroom who was taken away and then were fasting because they wanted to be with Christ. A third expectation, weeping over laughter. Blessed are you who are weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Jesus knew that the, the road that these disciples were on was full of denial and cost and pain. Disciples of Christ don't prioritize earthly joy. They they embrace the reality of suffering in this world, knowing that one day every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. So do you realize that, that your testimony of faith in this world is generally louder when you are walking through suffering? than when you were walking through ease. As others have said before me, anyone can receive a new car and say, I trust Jesus, praise God. Anyone can receive a windfall or a large gift or a large bank account and say, I I trust Jesus, praise God for this. But what about when you weep as a disciple of Christ? When following Christ costs you something and you say, "I, I trust God. What about when you are suffering, when you, when you cry over the deathbed of a loved one, or when you get the cancer diagnosis, and you still say that God is perfectly good? What kind of testimony does that give to God? In your weeping, you have the opportunity to declare how good God is, because you look forward to a future day where you will not weep, The health and wealth gospel says your life is meant for your happiness here on earth. Here's the upside-down truth of Christ's kingdom. Christians suffer with eternal joy in mind. 
When a disciple of Jesus weeps, Jesus says he's blessed because his weeping is temporary. But when one who is apart from Christ has joy, Jesus says he's to be pitied because his joy is temporary. What would you rather have? Suffering in this world with a hope of eternal joy or a, a fleeting joy in short-lived pleasure? Follow Christ. A fourth surprising expectation, and we'll close here, is this persecution for Christ. Look at verse 22. Blessed are you who, you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven, for so their fathers did the prophets. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing in the eyes of God when his people choose faithfulness to Christ over the praise of men. Historically, only one of these 12 apostles lived to die a natural death. The reality is, in the history of Christianity, serious discrimination on account of Christ is actually normal for most followers of Jesus Christ. This is even true today. One recent World Watch report says that lists 76 countries that have high, very high, or extreme levels of persecution. And that's not including countries where persecution is just medium. Jesus says, expect this. This is true for our brothers in Ukraine right now, is it not, Vlad? Pastors and churches there who are following Christ, what's the normal for them? This is true across the world. Persecution for the sake of Christ, except for the false prophets. Look at the chilling verse the passage ends on, verse 26. Woe to you when people, when all people speak well of you, for their, so their fathers did to the false prophets. Do you desire the praise of men? Do you, do you craft your words caring more that you don't offend others than the fact that you please God? Yes, Christians should speak graciously, but if fear of man in your heart leads you to just desire the praise of men for the things you say, then you have a problem. Some of us never want to talk to anyone about our faith because we want the praise of men. We want others to think well of us, and so we opt for being quiet. Jesus says, if you want to be his disciples, his, his disciple, you should not care about being excluded. You should be, by, at least by others, you, you should care about being excluded by God. Let me just briefly say here, to, to, to any who are here and not a believer, these are strange things to say. Because the, the, the Christian faith starts on a strange, difficult premise. And that is that all of us have offended God. Christians believe that all of us have done what is wrong in God's sight. We call this sin. We believe that we have not obeyed God as he has demanded us to do. And because of this, we've been separated from him. So much so that we don't even see it. We often live in ignorance to our separation from God. The good news of the gospel is that, that God didn't leave us there. God chose in his kindness to send Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life as the Son of God. He, he died on the cross 
in our place, and then he rose from the grave. And when he did this, he defeated death. He defeated sin so that anyone who would look in faith to Jesus Christ, not look to their own goodness, but actually renounce themselves and say they are not enough and look instead to Jesus Christ, anyone who would do this would be forgiven before God and would one day have eternal fellowship with God. This is the invitation of the gospel. It's to admit that you are far worse than you admit that we are far worse sinners than we want to say, but that in Christ we are loved and our sin is covered if only we would look to him in faith. Let me invite you today, if, if you haven't done this, look to Jesus Christ in faith. Trust in him. Talk to someone who can, who can show you from scripture what I'm saying is true. Talk to someone today even before leaving. We should conclude. Uh, let me just end with just pausing dear flock and, and just say who could live up to these expectations these are the, the strange upside down expectations for anyone who would truly want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ thankfully we have a echo of a surprising example here's the surprise of the Bible it's, it's that the almighty God, the powerful God, the transcendent creator of the universe who made us and deserves all the glory chose to come to earth and model these things for us. Jesus Christ became poor bringing us into the kingdom of God. Paul explains it this way. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You see, Jesus became poorer than we'll ever know, so that we could have his eternal riches. What kind of God is this? Christ took on hunger. He rejected his satisfaction in God or finding satisfaction in communion with God as he was separated from God the Father. We, saw that, we see this in his temptation when he was hungry. We see this faithfulness put on display in his life and his death. He refused sin in pursuit of a future satisfaction. When he died, God the Father saw his work and was satisfied. What kind of God is this? Jesus Christ wept for us. He stared into the cup that he would drink. Scripture says he felt overwhelming sadness and anguish. And with mourning, he looked into that cup, knowing that by drinking it, we would be healed. What kind of God is this? Jesus Christ was the one who was truly hated and excluded and reviled and spurned for us. Your fear of man and your desire of the praise of man can be put to death when you see the one that was excluded for you. Won't you worship this Jesus Christ with your life? Won't you give up your life to follow him in this upside-down kingdom? Let's pray to that end together today. Almighty God, we thank you for Christ who perfectly models each of these things for us. 
Father, I pray that you would create in us uh, the ability to be disciples who walk with these expectations, looking not to our earthly home, but a future home. In faith, and by doing so, are ready for poverty and weeping and reviling and hunger as we place our faith in Christ. Would you work this in us as disciples, we pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.